Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today are two critically important members of our team who are the co-hosts of our sister podcast, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week. Chris is a retired United States Navy commander and public affairs officer who is also the co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm. And Chris Cavus is one of the world's leading uh, reporters and commentators uh, on naval matters, as well as on the United States Navy. Gentlemen, welcome aboard. Always good to be here, Vago. Thanks for having us. An absolute pleasure, and it's really been uh, too long since we have last do uh, done this. But before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence and communication sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading air show is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, everybody, thanks uh, very much uh, for joining us. Cavus, uh, let's uh, start with you. You know, we've been doing uh, our at the end of the year, we always do a year end show and those are, have proven very uh, popular. Uh, yesterday, we heard from Byron Callen uh, of Capital Alpha Partners, sort of giving a summation of the year. What are the big issues we've seen and how does looking back tell us about what to expect in the coming uh, six months and, and what we should uh, be, you know, not just what we expect, but what should happen uh, as well. Uh, and Chris, you know, it has been an action-packed Navy year uh, with a lot of criticism being leveled uh, at the service. Uh, you know, this sort of sense that uh, each of the services are making some big cultural changes and somehow the Navy uh, is, is whistling past that cultural uh, graveyard. From your standpoint, what, are, what have been the big stories of the year? Well, I mean, the worldwide, the, you can't top the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the, the biggest impact it's having is because it wasn't expected. People did not see this coming. There are other aspects, the other things that were going on this year that uh, are continuations of existing situations. But nobody thought that the Russians would really do this. Certainly nobody thought that if the Russians did, did invade Ukraine, Ukraine would resist in the way they're doing. And, and now we have a war of attrition that is affecting the world increasingly in many ways every day. At the beginning of the war in February, uh, when it was definitely a war of maneuver, um, naval forces played a significant role uh, in support of the ground invasion. Uh, but we wound up with, uh, with several losses. Um, first off, the, the, the Russians lost a, an alligator-class landing ship in a port uh, that was unloading that they had prominently featured from their media only two or three days before, and the Ukrainians managed to blow that up and sink it. Um, and then, of course, there's the sinking of the cruiser Moskva, which is the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, the largest nominally most powerful ship, probably not, but certainly a symbol of um, a major symbol for the Russian Navy in the Black Sea. Uh, that ship was sunk. Uh, the Ukrainians snuck in there, got them. Um, very, very embarrassing, very humiliating. Um, a lot of the Navy has pulled back. They weren't, un they weren't able to 
carry out the sort of contested amphibious assault that a lot of people in the West were thinking they might. Um, they weren't able to gain enough advantages on the ground to make an uncontested amphibious assault. So the, the Russian naval forces have really been relegated to bombardment, uh, which is continuing today very much. Um, and, you know, using, using their vast stocks of caliber cruise missiles and they're, that are being depleted daily as they bombard all of Ukraine with those missiles. But uh, a wide, wide variety of uh, Russian vessels can employ those missiles. So in response, you've had revitalization of NATO, which right away put these formations together, uh, mostly in the Mediterranean, and largely built around the carrier. They're already deployed carrier Harry S. Truman. Um, and what might happen the rest of the year, I think as the, as the economic situations around the world, particularly with, with food supplies, get worse and more acute, there's going to be, there's going to be more pressure to, on, on the U.S. and on NATO to somehow break through the Russian blockade and resume some exports of Ukrainian grain. That means going all the way across the Black Sea, clearing clearing uh, seas that are that are sown with mines now, sea mines, both Russian and Ukrainian. Um, and of course, the Russians could could contest it. They're already starting to. The Russians are already starting to export stolen Ukrainian grain in Russian ships, trying to get it through Turkey, um, and trying to start making money off that. The pressure is going to build in the, in the coming months to do something about this. Um, and this sort of starts to evoke, you know, the, the back in the tanker wars in the late 80s, right. when the U.S. was reflagging Kuwaiti tankers as American ships and escorting them in the, in the Persian Gulf. So, but it, it's certainly rife with all kinds of risks, but it could, it could well turn to that. Um, uh, th thanks uh, very much, Chris. Uh, uh, Bull, uh, if you can give us uh, also a sense on from a from a U.S. Navy uh, standpoint and a U.S. Navy storyline standpoint, what sort of has uh, jumped out, right? I mean, uh, we've sort of inched toward uh, cancellation of the littoral combat ship, for example, uh, right? I mean, the Navy's ripped that Band-Aid off, and it doesn't look like all that many people are protesting. Uh, for example, we have the Bonhomme Richard fire investigation report, right? I mean, a lot of these other sort of cultural streams um, uh, and and acquisition stories. Uh, you know, what, what, are, what are the things that jump out at you uh, since January? So from a U.S. Navy perspective, um, 2022 has looked a lot like other years, right? I mean, there have been a number of really good things as um, the Navy has stepped up and helped NATO or as part of NATO um, respond and deal with what's going on uh, in Central Europe. Uh, you continue to see presence uh, in and around the Persian Gulf. Um, they are um, reinforcing our allies and building partnership capacity in the Pacific. Um, all things that you would expect from the Navy. And then, you know, sadly, you continue to see the things that you hope not to see, right? I mean, we're up to 12 to 13 CEOs fired. Um, we had a spat of suicides on the George Washington aircraft carrier. Um, we saw the normal budget ranker, you know, with a budget that came across that didn't meet the expectations of some people, particularly those on the Hill. You had controversial decisions like that of getting rid of LCS. Um, so 
just looking strictly through the U.S. Navy lens, it looks a lot like years past. What makes this year, at least to date, very different than years past is what Chris explained in the first couple minutes of the podcast. The fact that we are we have conflict ongoing in Central Europe at the same time that we are trying to prevent conflict in uh, the Pacific, or at least um, extend out the possibility of conflict in the Pacific, um, it really makes the goods and the bads even that much more important. Each deployment is looked at very closely to see how our ships are doing. Um, the training cycle is now under, um, I think, additional scrutiny to make sure that ships are uh, ready for both the challenges in Europe as well as the challenges in, in the Pacific. Um, you know, the bads become even more glaring, um, not really explaining why we're getting, we've gotten rid of 12 to 13 uh, CEOs th this year. Um, I, I think you know, stands out even more given the fact that, um, you know, we see this conflict uh, in, in between Russia and Ukraine. The fact that you have, you know, aircraft mishaps, um, you know, again, nothing new for the Navy or, or for any of the armed services, but they stand out more um, given the hyper awareness that folks have uh, as a result of uh, what's going on uh, in, in between Russia and Ukraine. So, um, you, you know, just to recap, I mean, no, nothing that you would say, oh, my goodness, this is so much different than uh, than any other year. But what is different is the fact that all of the things that we've grown accustomed to are occurring in a much more contested, much more dangerous environment in Europe at the same time that the folks in Indo-PACOM are, are trying their best to grow their capability and understanding of that theater um, and prepare um, within this you know, Davidson window uh, to either prevent or uh, prevail uh, in conflict. We um, have all been uh, talking um, and, and trying to be constructive, all of us, right? I mean, so if we have some frustration, it's, it's we do it because we care, recognizing that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a welcome wake-up call for all of the topics we've been discussing, right? Whether or not uh, there's a distributed leadership structure, whether folks are empowered enough to make these decisions, right? Uh, whether we have a logistics chain, whether uh, we have enough munitions of the right kind and the right volume, right? Once their shooting starts, um, the enemy always gets a vote and you're surprised. Uh, the Moskva was sunk. Uh, alligator class ship was, was sunk. Um, uh, and, you know, the Russians are losing, you know, it's it's a bloody war for Ukrainians, but the Russians also are losing um, people and mountains of equipment. Um, Chris, uh, Kavis, uh, let me let me go back to you about the um, uh, Bonhomme Richard uh, investigation. Uh, we followed that from the day the fire broke out on the ship uh, in a pier on San Diego. We asked uh, a lot of questions. You were quite passionate about, you know, why aren't more people being fired? Uh, it looks like uh, the Navy is working in that direction. On the other hand, there are folks who look at this and say, is the Navy really learning anything? Uh, and, and is the organization holding individuals accountable uh, as, it's, as it's want um, and actually not really changing all that much as a consequence, right? We, we shot a whole bunch of people. Look, we, we shot Brown, uh, Vi a retired Vice Admiral Brown, the former surf war, nothing to see here, everybody move along. Um, I mean, to, to me, that was sort of a, a real interesting cultural moment. And indeed, from a culture change standpoint, we've had many instances over the past year uh, that, that one can point to. What, what did you make of that 
Uh, and then Bull want to get your sense on this uh, as well in terms of sort of whether or not the right kind of lessons are being learned um, from this incident. Well, yeah, the Bonhomer Shard, and as we record this, you know, that we have two years, two years ago, July 12th, uh, 2020, is when the fire broke out. It was a Sunday morning and it wasn't put out until the Thursday afternoon. Um, an unprecedented development. This has never happened in the 246 whatever year history in the US Navy. These things just don't happen. Um, the reports, several, a couple of reports came out uh, some months ago now. And as you read through the reports, if you were upset about this, you realized that everything you thought was going on was, was going on and it was even, even <laughs> much worse than you thought. Um, there is no accountability. And, and, I, and I'll tell you this, and this, this, this is where it really comes down, is uh, there's no passion in this. So, you know, we're going to censure some people. This should never happen. We don't want, okay, nobody's mad. People should be really, really outright pissed, mad, scary mad. This stuff is not supposed to happen. Any number of people failed throughout this affair. All kinds of people. Rich Brown's apology in Defense News last week was, you know, we're waiting for somebody to, 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 to take charge and you do that. Nobody goes down and just says, take charge. You're an admiral. You've got three stars. Use them. Who cares? Sort it out later. The boat's burning. Maybe we should do this now and worry about somebody else's feelings about the proper chain of command later on. And if somebody's upset about the proper chain of command and holding you from taking charge, that person should be shot, you know, figuratively. I mean, get rid of these people and get mad about it. Get mad. You lost a two and a half billion dollar ship. That was a major element in, in our force structure. It, it was, was reaching the end of a major rebuilding that would have upgraded it to operate F-35 Joint Strike Fighters, and it's gone. And it's gone by absolute neglect. It's, 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 it's more than halfway scrapped now in, in uh, Brownsville, Texas. And where, where is the outrage? Why does it take two years to investigate, to come to a, to a conclusion that so-and-so should be censored? Oh, by the way, this so-and-so is already retired. Oh, by the way, that so-and-so is already retired. Where is the outrage? Where is it? That's what I, there, there is nothing that this leadership can do now to make up for that. It's real. I, I'm still just thoroughly appalled. Well, what's, what's interesting is that there is trepidation uh, there, but uh, in, interestingly, when commanding officers show some initiative, uh, you know, they end up getting fired because right. they use too much initiative, black. right? They, they went a little too, they, Ooh, you burned a little too many, too much gas. Um, you know, he flew that helicopter a little hard. Ooh, hey, Chris Cavas puts uh, operational availability. Um, you know, ooh, his, you know, he flunked a command survey because the kids thought he was a little bit too tough on him. Um, they squash initiative every chance that they can get. They don't let people take any risks. They don't let people push anything. They hold people to accountability way, way beyond the scope of any individual's area of, of uh, responsibility. 
they hold lesser people, they hold subordinates responsible for the mistakes of those above them. And you got to ask yourself, every time somebody gets fired, let's ask that relieving officer, the officer who made that decision, please tell us about that. I want to hold you accountable for that. Because if your people are failing to the point that you need to disrupt that, that command and get rid of them, then what are you doing wrong that made that guy fail? I want to ask that question. I am tired of looking at the, oh, the this captain, he did that. What did that Commodore do? What did that flag officer do or not do that, that, that led to this guy failing? And now we've, and, and here, here's where we are. Nobody ever asked those questions. Um, in, in, indeed. And, and we could, we could do a two hour program, uh, you know, frankly, uh, just on that, right. You're, you're telling me that you've invested that much time to prepare this guy or gal for this important job. And in a, in a moment, where they probably need uh, an arm around them to be like, hey, this is the direction you need to go into, as opposed to that one, um, you know, that, that tends not, not to happen. And indeed, right, if, if everything is about accountability, everybody's got to shoot somebody to be seen as being hold, holding people accountable. Chris, go ahead and give us, you know, sort of your sense on what the key takeaways uh, are well, I mean, from, I think from the report and, and sort of more broadly. Yeah, I, I mean, for from I mean, I think the report actually, I mean, given the fact that it, it took, you know, as long as it did, there was a moment that was lost because not only did the world see the, the ship burn at the pier, but the Navy saw the ship burn at the pier. And, and in the days and weeks after, I, I believe, you, you know, there, there were good examples where Admiral Brad Cooper comes to mind, who really, uh, who at the time was, um, Naval Service Forces Atlantic in charge of all the ships on the East Coast went down, really tried to drill into his folks the importance of, uh, you, you know, every sailor or firefighter. But then when it takes two years for the report to get out, efforts like that, the momentum is gone. And then so you have to restart that momentum. I would also say that what happens when any of these high profile incidents occur is that the Navy and the community of the um of the incident, in this case, a service community, they become laser focused on just that community and in that area. And while that's important in terms of determining accountability, um, again, an, a, a major opportunity for the entire Navy to learn from um, the incident is, is lost. So in this case, you know, there are lots of lessons from Bonhomme Richard that could be learned by the aviation community and um, the sub community as well as uh, surface. But I don't know that the Navy did a really good job of that. We saw that in the wake of the collisions out in the Pacific. Um, so what what you have, I mean, you, you know, to sort of put a bow on this, you have a Navy that um, has a lot of uh, a lot of tasking um, that is uh, doing its best to meet meet that tasking. I think because perhaps it's overtasked, you start to see more and more of the splinters and more and more of the shortcomings that you know previously had been. Um, you, you know, unseen uh, by, um, you know, by critics. Um, and until the Navy addresses and gets that balance right, I think you're going to continue to see these, these issues, whether they're uh, operational issues like the Bonhomme Richard, whether they're cultural issues like you see with COs being fired. Um, you're, you're going to just continue to see these as, as we move forward. It, it, it pains me as somebody that did 20 years in uniform. I know that sailors are out there every day doing their job, working hard. You would love to be able to tell that story, but it's hard for our audience um, to, 
to sort of just stop there because their efforts, those day-to-day efforts are being hampered by sort of these big issues that seem to be glossed over. And, and as I said at the beginning, they're even more magnified given the fact that the world is dealing with this major conflict in Central Europe. I want to um, go to where we're going uh, next. Um, Elaine uh, Luria has proposed a commission um, to uh, take a look at uh, the Navy. Um, That's been uh, backed by others. Um, Unfortunately, I mean, the the challenge and the problem is whether it's for LCS or anything, right? It's it's sort of, let's rip the Band-Aid and move on. I just want to point out to everybody, LCS was like 100 billion. It's not the cost of the ship. It's the displacement of sailors, the training pipeline you've done. You have the mission modules. You, you know what I mean? It's just a lot that's gone into this that goes beyond just the acquisition cost of the hardware. And then the, the staggering sort of, well, one's more expensive and has bad gearboxes. The other one, it's hulls crack, right? Okay, all kinds of ships have hull cracking problems. We fix them. And if you have broken gearboxes, get the contractor to fix the gearbox, doesn't cost you anything. And if it had to cost you something, I'm not sure, you know, this is like saying I need a new alternator, but I had to throw the car out. Okay. You could pay a couple of million dollars if you have to and replace the gearbox or repair the gearbox. Maybe you could find a use for this half billion dollar, uh, or, or far more, uh, ship. Um, broadly, what, what is the expectation, right? Going forward this year, what are we going to see and Cavus, is is this commission going to feature prominently or not in that conversation? I don't know. I, I certainly won't won't predict the effect of this commission. Um, oh, good, another commission. Oh, good, another government commission. Um, I can't say I'm excited about it, um, but it you know it gives the it gives the folks on the hill another voice. I suppose. I don't know if it'll have a positive or a negative or just a all nothing uh, effect. Um, I'm always disappointed that the Navy as a culture, certainly an acquisition, can't seem to adapt and evolve and repurpose things. And if you've, for, for a leadership that's perennially bemoaning the fact that we don't have enough resources, well, you have these resources, the, all these littoral combat ships, whether you like them or not, you've got more than two dozen of them. They exist. They're paid for. They're out there right now. You can't come up with anything else that you might want to do with these things. Or the best you can come up with is we want to throw them away. Wow, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, uh, you know the old saying: if you if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Um, there's just no even attempt at it. It's just we don't want them to throw away. Give, we want to buy something else. And there's no guarantee that in ten years, when every single admiral who's asking for this stuff today is gone and out of here. Um, the next crowd isn't going to say, I don't want this stuff. I want to do something else. That's hard to, hard to follow. Chris? Cervella? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know that the commission will fix it, but I, I, I like the idea. The Navy's not going to fix itself. Um, it, it will take either um, a strong senior executive, which, I mean, the way the politics are sort of laying out, I, I don't know that we're going to get a president anytime soon that is really focused on the Navy. So it will take probably Congress to or or the Department of Defense uh, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense to sort of force the Navy um, to make the changes that it needs to make. So in that regard, 
I mean, I like the idea of it. I mean, I think the devil will be in the details. And, you know, if it forces the Navy to reprioritize, to recommit to the, an idea of sea power instead of, you know, parochial boutique efforts, uh, I, I would be all for, for it. If it helps grow this idea of a whole of government approach to naval and maritime affairs uh, into commerce uh, via the sea, uh, that that would be good if it gave Congress more teeth uh, and forced them to look beyond their district and really get into the budget. I, I would be in favor of it. I, I just don't know that that's how it'll come together. Uh, and uh, you think absent, uh, and this is not a criticism of uh, Secretary Del Toro at all, but unless you've got a John Lehman working for a Ronald Reagan who cared and empowered that secretary to go and break some China that's not going to happen you don't think as long as the navy continues to do what the navy has been doing um i, I don't think are, i don't think things will change so I, I suppose there are people that are happy with the way the navy is um carrying on um and so you know may, maybe they don't want to see that change I think there are a growing number of people that look at the Navy and think, boy, there's a lot of potential here. This is an important mission. If only we could fix certain elements of the culture, if only we could sort of get them to focus and get them to advocate for themselves, um, you, you know, they there could be things that are fixed that would make the Navy more effective. I don't see anything today that tells me that's in the works. Travis? I agree with that. I, I, I really do. I don't, I don't see anything. Nothing's changing. Before we part, um, what are the big things that have to happen in the last six months of the year? Each one of you take that because we could have an hour long conversation on this and I've got about 12 follow ups. But what are what are the things from your standpoint, whether the Navy has to do or whether Congress has to do for the Navy? Um, walk us through and each one of you get a, less than a minute to do it. Go ahead, Cavus, and then Cervillo bring us over the finish line. It's like uh, Chris just said. I mean, right now, the leadership uh, is not really that strong in terms of advocating for the Navy, leadership in the White House, leadership in the Pentagon, leadership uh, from the Navy's own leadership. Uh, the, the Hill itself lacks in strong leadership that really cares about the Navy and really is really interested. Um, to the extent that they are interested, I hope they, that, that they plus the Navy up. Uh, it looks like they will. The question is how much and in what, in what area. It still won't be enough. And, you know, I certainly hate relying on Congress every year to lead the way, um, but that's a pair, that's really where we are these days. I think that in the next six months that, you know, on the good side, I, I think you're hearing good things out of uh, Admiral Paparo out in Pack Fleet. I think that you are um, seeing um, a continual evolution of the complexity uh, and importance of um, sort of the medium stage uh exercises that are occurring um, so that, you, you know, if you can empower those CEOs to really take full advantage of, of these, um, you know, new exercises and with added complexity and you start to grow them and you, you demonstrate trust, um, I, I think that, you know, you can start to address some of these issues. But until you get a secretary of the Navy, until you get a CNO that, I won't say have a strategy because I mean, the, the Navy shouldn't have its own strategy. It should nest under a, a national defense strategy and a national security strategy. But until you get them to be honest and consistently tell um, the Congress, the public and the Navy what the Navy needs um, and what the risks are of not having what the Navy needs, 
I think you're you're never going to get beyond the cultural issues and you'll continue to lie to yourself. So if the Navy's honest with itself, I think it can begin to make that, uh, that those steps forward. Until that happens, I think it's, you know, we're going to have the same show uh, in, in December. I had one thing and that, that is, I think would, would go a long way towards making a lot of these cases and and putting reality on display. And that is, show what the Chinese are really doing, show how they're actually behaving and start allowing media to go out and embark ships in the South China Sea, making a Taiwan Strait Passage, making a FONOPS near the Paracels or something, um, riding, riding the P-8s as they go through these areas uh, and actually show and listen to how the Chinese are behaving. I think that would that would go a long way towards everybody involved and in to trying to get them more energized and more supportive of what's happening. Chris, uh, that's, uh, that's a great point because um, folks have a tendency of understanding what the U.S. Air Force does. They have an understanding of what soldiers do. Uh, they have an understanding of what Marines do. Many people have absolutely no clue what the Navy does, aside from the fact it's got a lot of cool stuff. Uh, and so any opportunity you can show what is the role that the Navy can play in this circumstance, I think it's very important. I think the single most important thing is at a time when the United States Air Force is changing its culture, at a time when the United States Army is changing its culture, at a time when the United States Marine Corps is changing its culture, the fact that the Navy is not is putting, it, it, is, it is in glaringly sharp relief, uh, the gulf that is growing for a service uh, that is that is important at all times. I'm I'm with Chris. Uh, the Navy has an important shaping and deterrence function. Focusing on the Navy's function only as a warfighting tool is missing the point. It is a great tool in order to shape your adversary and prevent them from miscalculating. And if the impression the other guy has is that the Navy doesn't have the right culture, doesn't have the right capability, and can trip over its own laces uh, in a in in port in its most important port uh, in the Pacific, it, it just erodes structural fundamental deterrence. Uh, and, and, and once you get that right, all good things uh, will, will come of it. That's my brief sermonizing. Uh, Cavus, thanks very much. Cervello, thank you very much. Uh, and tell the audience, tune in to the Cavus Ships podcast. It's the best out there. And these two guys do a terrific uh, job. Last week, uh, we're discussing uh, the Chinese aircraft carrier, the third Chinese aircraft carrier with a thoughtful conversation involving our good friend, Dr. Patrick Cronin. Uh, in a sense, what should the audience expect on this week's uh, show? Oh, I think this week we're going to talk about the Maritime Coin Project, counterinsurgency project that's uh, uh, operating under the... Naval Institute, U.S. Naval Institute uh, Proceedings Magazine about uh, various aspects of what China is doing and uh, how people should push back against it. Terrific. Thanks very much again, guys. Really appreciate it. And we should do this a lot more often than we've done it so far. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago. Thanks, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.